Verse 43 of Luke chapter 9 is a, a bit of a continuation, as we said. Uh, last week, we looked at this encounter that Jesus has with uh, this group of people. There's a crowd, there's the disciples there, but uh, among this crowd, there's a father and a son. A father who has deep love for his son and a son who uh, we're told uh, in the text is uh, overtaken, is controlled by an unclean spirit. There's demonic activity at work. And in the, the middle of this, Jesus demonstrates his power and his authority. His work is on display. He's demonstrating that he rules and reigns over every aspect of Every area of life, the natural and the supernatural, come under his authority. And we find that the result of this, Jesus simply speaks. We see in verse 42, uh, he speaks and, and rebukes this unclean spirit and healed the boy. The demonic had attacked this young child, but Jesus speaks and brings healing. And he entrusts this child back with his father. And we're told in verse 43 that all were astonished at the majesty of God. All were astonished at the majesty of God. And so what we said last week as we looked at the text, that this same phrasing, this same word is used uh, just a few verses prior as we see the tr Mount of Transfiguration there. As Jesus is upon the mountain with his inner circle with Peter, James, and John as they're there and uh, all of a sudden uh, the Lord uh, is glorified, Jesus is, is, uh, becomes radiant, and he is... Uh, just uh, on display for these disciples to see a, a bit of a foreshadowing of what is to come. And as they're there, Moses and Elijah are there, and Jesus and Moses and Elijah are having a conversation, and, uh, and in the process of all this, uh, we see this cloud upon the mountain that envelops them, and there's this testimony from, uh, from the Father that says that here is Jesus, you should listen to him. He is the chosen one. Listen to what he has to say. Here he is, listen to him. And so he comes down off the mountain, uh, and uh, the people look upon his majesty in his mighty works. Just as his majesty was re revealed upon the mountain, we find a kind of this linkage, this similar phrasing that's being revealed. And so we have this idea of who Jesus is being revealed. We have this call to, to listen to him, an affirmation that he is indeed the Son, and then we come to our text this morning, and it's kind of this continuation of that because uh, there's a, a bit of a paragraph break, and it kind of is a new section, but at the same time, it's not a new section because we're told all were astonished at the majesty of God. So the crowd is there. They're blown away. Everyone's excited. But then we, we read this in the rest of verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, so their attention is on all these, these things. They're marveling at everything that he was doing. This isn't just restricted to uh, the healing of this boy who was possessed, but they're, they're starting to, to look into all of Jesus' miracles, all of the things that he's performed. He's feeding the 5,000. He's demonstrating his authority over, uh, and power over, uh, this, um, over the supernatural. And, and so as this is happening, 
He's gaining popularity. People are excited. There's, you know, this, this rush in the crowd where they're, they're uh, you know, a, a bit of a frenzy where they're pumping each other up like, this guy's amazing. Earlier, after the feeding of the 5,000, uh, one of the other Gospels tells us that they already wanted to make him king. So there's this really strong belief, this really strong excitement that takes place here. And so although Jesus is gaining in popularity, he's coming up, he knows where things are headed. Remember, he's not kept this a secret. He's spoken to the disciples about this already. And so he begins the process, again, of preparing his disciples, of reminding them what is to come. He's, he's speaking to them to say, remember, guys, here's where things are going. Everyone's real excited about these miracles and this demonstration of power and authority. Uh, but don't get caught up in that. Don't be too obsessed with that. You guys love these signs and wonders. You guys like to see these things. But, but don't, get, don't get obsessed with that. He says, remember what I'm about. Remember who I am. He says this to the disciples in the midst of this huge frenzy. He kind of, it's almost as if he kind of like turns to them, taps on their shoulder. He's like, hey, uh, come here for a second. I want you guys to hear this while you see everything happening there. I'm totally trying to put a, a, a dampener on your party here. I'm totally trying to give you some perspective. And so he says this in verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears. So he opens telling them, I'm not just saying this like as like a one-off random thing. He's like, I'm telling you, it's very important that you remember this specific thing. Here's a key to unlocking everything. Let these words sink into your ears. Don't just let them go in and out of your ears. Let them go in and let them dwell there. Let them abide there. Let them have a home and a foundation. Let these things go into your ears. And so, uh, don't be misled, he tells them. Let these words sink into your ears. And then he tells them this. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So he, just a simple statement. Now, again, this is not the first time that they've heard this. Right? Uh, back in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 21, he tells them, or excuse me, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So this isn't like this, you know, real great secret. This isn't the first time that they've heard it. He's just giving them a reminder like, here, here we go again, guys. Don't get distracted. I want you to remember what the point is, what the purpose is, where we're going. Remember, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. And so he lays out for them in verse 22, who is going to deliver him over into the hands of men, how this is going to happen, what it entails. And so he speaks uh, in a more truncated version here. It's a bit shorter, uh, but the, the, the idea is the same. Now, I want you to see the contrast that Jesus is putting in play here. He's trying to do this while the crowds are like in a frenzy, while they're so excited. He's like, look, guys, here's what you need to know. While they're marveling at me now, shortly I will be handed over. I will be betrayed. Why are they here? Why are the crowds excited? Why are you excited? 
There's a call to take stock about what you actually think about Jesus. Are you really here for what he's saying he's here for? Are you here because, like, you really want the free food that he keeps making? Are you really here because, uh, you know, he has the ability to, to bring temporary relief to your physical situation? And so there's a contrast that takes place here. Where we're meant to see these uh, against one another. In a, sen- in a sense, Jesus is saying here that he, who is the, the chosen one, the Savior, the Messiah, the, the man that God has chosen, will, betray- will be betrayed by men. The ultimate man, the final man, is handed over by those whom he came to save. He faces rejection from those he desires to serve. And so as he says these things to the disciples, against the backdrop of this great party that's happening and they're all excited, we read in verse 45 how they receive it. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Okay, now this seems like a very like sketchy sort of verse, right? Because it's like Jesus was trying to tell them something, but he didn't let them know what it really meant. He really didn't want them to know. He was trying to make sure that, although he was saying, he was trying to be like, I told you, but I also made sure that you didn't know. That's not what's happening here. Okay, that's what it seems like in a sense, but that's not what it's getting at. Remember, he already spoke plainly to them, uh, more plainly to them, in the, in the previous verses, in chapter uh, 9, 21, and 22. He already explained it to them there. Not only that, he goes on to explain to them in that passage what it means for them. He says, if you want to be my followers, if you want me to be king, then you're going to take up your cross and deny yourself, and you're going to follow me. He says there the implications of what it means. He gives them way more background. They have way more information. This isn't a confusing thing for them. So what's going on here? Why does Luke record for us that they did not understand this saying? That it was concealed from them? Well, Luke, as he writes, he's not simply getting at that they had a lack of comprehension. Like they were just like, we don't really know, we don't really understand any of that. That's not what he's getting at here. They understood the words that Jesus was saying. They understood uh, exactly what he was claiming. What they couldn't understand was why this was the plan. Right? It's like when someone tells you something and it makes total sense to you. You, like, you 100% comprehend it, but you're like, I think this is a bad idea. Why sh- why, like, I don't understand why we're doing this. I think this is a total bad idea. That's the type of understanding that they, that they don't have. When he says they didn't understand this saying, it's like, it basically is saying, like, they don't agree that this is going to be a good path. They don't understand how this is going to work out. How could this take place in regard to everything that they knew regarding God's Savior? From the time that they were, they were young, they were brought up in the ways of Israel, told that God's going to bring a Savior. He's going to rescue and save. He's going to deliver. And then the Savior shows up, and then they actually get to know him. And then he's like, yeah, but I'm not going to do the thing that you thought that, that I was going to do. And then they're like, wait, what? Like, everyone's been telling us this. It's been beaten into us. It's been, it has, like, 
formed our minds about how to think about this. And Jesus is like, yeah, just like ignore all that. Like we're not doing any of that. So they don't even have the framework the, the, uh, in place. They don't have the ability to even open their minds to be like, okay, well then how is it going to work? How, how, how are these things going to happen? More than that, I'm sure that they're thinking, well, how are we supposed to be involved then? How are we supposed to be involved? If, if it's not going to go according to the plan, and Jesus is saying like, okay, uh, I'm going to be delivered over, but we're like, we're like the followers, and so typically like we're, we're with the person, but, but like how are we supposed to be involved? Remember, he's already told them how they're going to be involved. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. He, he, gives, he outlines it for them. It's not confusing. But as they think about it, what's he doing? How are we going to be involved? Essentially, the plan highlights the fact that, like, Jesus doesn't need, like, assistance. He doesn't need, like, help executing this plan. They're not, like, a pivotal cog in this. It's not like, okay, disciples, we're going to rush in to Rome, and I need you guys to go around the back flank, and you guys are going to lead this charge. He's just like, no, like, like, really, like, I just don't need you to do anything. Like, like, not only that, like, you can't do anything. So it totally cuts them out of the plan. They don't have a role to play. They don't have any sort of uh, thing to contribute. And they're ill-equipped for this because it's a bunch, it's like, you know, there's, it's basically like a terrorist, a bunch of fishermen, a tax cheat. It's, it's just like this massive band of like random people who are not ready to, to accomplish this mission. And so, they're not necessary to the plan. They're not needed at all. And so, in this moment, in effect, Jesus is challenging their thinking about who he is, who God is, how they ought to think about things. How could the Savior be betrayed? How is this going to work? How is Jesus destined for death, but also he's the Savior? How, what are we doing? I mean, in the sense, like, this is, uh, we sit from kind of this perspective when we just be like, oh, that was so stupid, right? But a lot of times, we kind of have these same attitudes, these same perspectives in our own lives because we're just like, well, I don't really understand how any of this is going to work because, like, my plans are like, I'm going to go here and I'm, clearly God has not gotten the memo about my plans and what I'm thinking about doing and how I'm going to accomplish this. And if he only knew, maybe I need to, like, re-forward that email to him and bring it to the top because he's not, like, responding in a timely manner. You know, like, we kind of treat it in that sort of way. But the reality is that he is looping us into his plan. We're not trying to notify him of what we're doing, of our plans, of how we want things to work. We are submitted to him. So you're supposed to be involved through your knowledge of him, through your nearness to him. As you go through the rest of the Gospels, you'll notice that the disciples, they don't ever really get, the, they don't really ever get like read into the whole thing. All they do is they keep staying next to Jesus. They're just like, okay, well, I guess he's going here, so I guess we're going there. He never, like, outlines the whole thing, like, okay, guys, so here's how the next week's going to work. We're going to go here. We're going to go do this thing. They just were like, oh, Jesus is going here. I guess we're going here. What are we doing tomorrow? I don't know. I guess we'll find out when we wake up, and Jesus is like, okay, let's go here. He just does his thing, and they're near to Jesus. They're not required to do anything. They're not required to prepare anything. Wherever they go, they have what they need for that moment. Food's there clothes there, shelters there, whether they're experiencing trial or tribulation, whether it's feast or famine, they have everything that they need. 
It's the nearness to Jesus that's important. Not the preparation, but understanding where he's going and what he's doing. And so don't operate in unbelief. Don't operate trying to go your own way, being like, well, I don't really trust God's plan and what he's doing. You've got to recognize that he's doing something way bigger, way greater, better than what we could construct and what we could put together. And to entrust ourselves to him and to go where he's going. Don't get frustrated. Don't try to go your own way. Walk with him. Now, what happens here is they don't get it. And then we're told they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So either, number one, they didn't pursue the issue for a number of reasons. Maybe they were embarrassed. Maybe they didn't see the point still. Maybe they were just like, oh, like he's speaking to us, but like we like we really don't get it, but like we really don't want to agree, but we don't want to like we don't want to like bring up that we disagree with him. We don't want to kind of put our like maybe they're afraid of the answers. I mean, the last time they Jesus spoke to them about this, then he told them like all this crazy stuff like, oh, you got to lose your life, like, right? Maybe he's, they're like, oh, he's like saying that crazy stuff again. Maybe we should just keep our mouths shut because last time he said all this like really gnarly things that like made us afraid. So like, let's just kind of, but we're told they, they don't ask. They don't know. They, they, don't, they don't even pursue it. So in a sense, it's kind of like not Jesus' fault also because like they don't, they have the ability to ask and they just like, we're just going to keep quiet about this one. Like, we're just going to let him keep talking. Do you what you got to do, Jesus, but like, we're just not going to rock the boat. And so Luke moves the story on uh, to the next scene. Look at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. And so, you know, they think, okay, well, Jesus has got this kingdom. It's coming. It's in breaking. He's telling us here he's going to be delivered over. You know, like, we don't really get that, but like, Let's find out, right, what's happening here. Who's, who's going to be the greatest? Like, when, when he's ruling and uh, we are all together, you know, maybe we should find out, like, what the order is going to be. Like, you know, perhaps there was a little bit of rivalry here because Peter, James, and, and John just got to be on the Mount of Transfiguration and they're, like, in a little squabble about this, perhaps. Uh, but it's a little bit ironic that while Jesus is telling the disciples about, like, his approaching suffering and death that they're arguing about how important they are. Like, which one of us is going to be the most important? Like, this seems like such a crazy thing to be happening. Like, read the room, guys. Like, come on. Like, maybe this is not, like, what you should be having a discussion about. It's a contrast of, of his outward love and care and compassion, his service. And yet, we find in the midst of that, those he's coming to serve are obsessed with their pride, their ego, their self-importance, selfishness. Jesus is saying, here's what I'm coming to do. He's like, but what about me? Who, which one of us is going to be the best? They don't even consider what, what he's saying. They get into this big argument about, well, okay, like, cool, thanks for that, Jesus, but like, now we need to find out amongst us who's the best. I mean, what, what a selfish conversation, what a selfish act. But yet, at the same time, these are things that we do all the time. When we hear the truth of the gospel, when we hear the gospel proclaimed, when we get up in the morning and we have the 
the chance to encounter the risen Lord in our times, uh, you know, of devotion, of reading the scriptures, and we're just like, no, like, I'm good. Like, I got some stuff I need to get to, God. I know you're there to, to meet with me, to, to, to connect with me, to speak to me, to prepare me for my day. But, like, you know, I've got some stuff I got to do. So, uh, you know, I just need you to know that it's, it's really important. And what I'm doing is really important. But, like, what you want to do with me, probably not as important. Or these are things that come into play every day in every area, every aspect of our lives. It's a challenge for us as God's people to continually remember that he's the king. That we belong to him. The God of all creation is waiting to meet with us and to speak with us and to commune with us in his word, in prayer. We don't want to, to miss that. It's all that they were yearning for at this time, that they would have that relationship with God. And yet we have that privilege each day. And so they argue about who is the greatest. Right, but then there's Jesus verse 47, who knows the reasoning of their hearts. He always knows the hearts. He's not fooled, right? So you could pretend, but Jesus, he's not fooled. You could try to like pull a fast one by everybody else and they'll be like, oh yeah, I, I see what's happening. Jesus, he, he's not fooled. He sees right past it. He addresses the need. What you think you were concealing from others, he sees it. So it's best to bring it out so that he can deal with it and that his people can, can work together to help him, uh, help, help you return back to him, to pursue him. And so Jesus takes this situation. He knows these disciples are arguing, they're having this big squabble over something stupid. He knows what's going on in their hearts. And then he deals with this, with this dispute through an illustration. I love this. Luke tells us that he took a child and put him by his side. So he brings this child. He grabs, grabs this uh, little kid. Right? Uh, this is obviously someone who is um, not, not a baby, who's, who's young enough to understand. Jesus saying, like, hey, get over here. Right? But not too, uh, too old. I imagine that... Perhaps uh, Jesus is, uh, brings him over and picks him up and is just kind of like holding this little kid. But he brings a child into the mix. Now, why does he do this? Right? For us, we're just like, okay, well, like, because like, I don't know, like you can come up with like any sort of idea from, from, from our, our culture. But he brings a child in from this culture in this moment in time because as a whole, Children are too young to be regarded as great at all. They're just like, you're a kid, you haven't accomplished anything, you're young. Like, we don't have high expectations of you. We don't expect that you're going to do a lot of things right. You, we expect that you're uh, ill-equipped for most of the things in life, that you need the care and concern of, of, of a more mature person to take care of you, that you need things, that you're not self-sufficient, that you're not independent. More than that, in this time, in the Jewish culture, um, someone who would have been young like this would not have been old enough to uh, receive instruction in the law. They wouldn't have been able to be taught the scriptures. And so to spend time with them in this, in, in this era would have been considered a complete waste. 
Like, don't spend any time with kids because they are not, uh, su- they're, they're not of sufficient age to be uh, having conversations about the scriptures and to be having this, this uh, instruction and training. They're, they're worthless for that. In fact, one of uh, the, the kind of writings of the time recorded in um, the Mishnah, which is kind of like a, a document that would have instructed life at that time from the rabbis, uh, said this, morning sleep, midday wine, so this kind of giving us a list here, morning sleep, you sleeping too long, midday wine, drinking too much in the middle of the day, chattering with children, and tearing in places where men of common people assemble, destroy a man. So if you're chattering with children, that's destructive, right? That's, that's kind of what's happening here. So in this moment, Jesus brings in a kid, and totally it's just like, Oh, cultural expectations, like what you guys think things are supposed to be like, let me just destroy all of that. Like, bring in this little kid who's considered not great, who's considered worthless, who needs help, who needs care, who needs concern. Let me bring this guy into the midst, into the midst, and says this in verse 48. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, uh, for he who is least among you all, is the one who is great. So he brings in this kid, loops him into this to this moment here, and says, "All right, treat this child. Receive him in the same way that you would receive me." He says, "We're basically the same." He puts such a value on this child that he says, what you perceive to be of little worth, this is the attitude that I want you to have. You guys are squabbling over which one of you is going to be the greatest, but like something that you think is not great, here's what I'm saying is is how you should think about things. Now, I want you to see in this passage, uh, in verse 48, right, because we're an obsessive people, like this is just, like, just like the disciples are told very plainly what's going on, but they don't understand. This is kind of how we can be also when we receive verse 48, because we're like, okay, we mostly just go straight to the last verse. Whoever is least among you is the one who is great, because everyone's like, I want to be great. So I'm going to be like the least among everybody so that way I can be great. Okay, that's not what he's getting at, right? It's not, this isn't instructions for us on, on, on how to be the least among us so we can be great right? So this is, the prescription is not for you to try to be great. He doesn't declare anyone great, in fact. He speaks to the least of all being great. So we're not getting um, a framework that says, here's how to be the great one. What we're getting instead is a new framework that's saying, even that which you perceive to be worthless is great. In a sense, he's saying, everything, every person is valuable to me. He's not saying, here's how to be the great one. He's saying, you need to think differently about how everyone can be made great. How are they made great? Well, he says, by receiving, by receiving, by nearness. Greatness is not connected to an individual. It's not connected to a person. Instead, it's established by your relationship to Jesus, 
right? Whoever receives the child in my name receives me. He's not like, go to the least because then you'll be, you'll be near the great person and then you'll be great by nearness. No, it's by him. It's connected to who he is. The child does not have greatness, but receiving the child in the name of Jesus is the same as receiving Jesus. And then secondly, to receive Jesus is to receive the father who sent him. So essentially, Jesus is boiling it down uh, to this, right? God loves people. Therefore, God sent Jesus to save people. And Jesus loves people. And he wants all people to meet him. So to be disciples of Jesus means uh, to value the things that he values. So God loves people. He sent Jesus. Jesus uh, loves people. So we're his disciples. And we love the same things that he loves. So therefore, we love people. It's, it's like as simple as that. Like, we're carrying on the same character of, of Christ. He wants to have all people know him. And so he calls all of his followers to change the way that you think about all people. Everybody is a candidate to, like, meet Jesus. We want everybody to meet Jesus. That's what we're there for. We need to just make the introduction, and then they can decide whether they like him or not. But I'm not there to convince you. He's, he, he, he's going to be more impressive showing himself to you than I'm going to be trying to make a big deal out of him. I'm going to still try to make a big deal out of him. But he's going to have to do that work. And so when we go out, when we think about other people, we're not thinking about them as like, okay, well, like some people uh, like might, might work out, some people might not. Here's the important people uh, in the world. Here's the kingdom of God. Here's none of that. Jesus is not about status. There's no status. Greatness doesn't, it's not connected to status. In the world, greatness is connected to, like, status. If you have status, you usually have that because you're great at something. This is a complete reversal of how the world works. Right? When you, when you go, you go to the airport and they, like, board all those people on the first from the first sections, right? It's because, like, they've flown, like, a ton, and it's like, oh, well, you're our most valuable customers because you've invested a ton with us, right? And Jesus is like, he's like, I don't care about any of that, right? He's like, if, if you're alive and you're breathing, like, I'm all for you. I want you, like, you're so valuable to me. The more that you've, that you are, are connected to him, it, it, the, the, your nearness to him is what makes you important, that you're connected to him makes you great. Not that you're ever great, but that he's great. You're just near greatness. And so the goal for us is not to try to be great apart from him. The goal for us is not to try to gain status. But with humility, know Jesus. Now, the last thing that I want you to see in this text before we pan to the next scene is what Jesus does here with this kid. He brings him in and says, you're important. I want to hold him up as an example. I want everybody to know that the reversal of the kingdom, this kid is valuable. Now, this is a direct contrast in what happens when, when Satan gets a hold of a kid, right? The passage before this is Satan, is, there's a demonic spirit that's taking over a little boy, and when, when 
the demonic gets involved with that child. He's like, I'm going to destroy this kid. I'm going to make him bruise himself and throw, and throw himself down. And I'm going to try to ruin this kid. And Jesus speaks to him and is like, no, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to bring you back to your, to your father. And then he brings in another kid. He's like, this is important. This kid is important. There's an ethic that's continuing there that Jesus is showing in two passages back to back. Children are important, right? Super important for us to understand. And this is, I mean, I know some of you guys have been with us for a while, but one thing that we've always said as a church, always from the very beginning, we used to have like a, a, um, a pretty like decent size, like children's ministry, because there's a bunch of little kids and Coast Guard families and stuff here. One thing we've always said, and is super important, and, and you need to know this because when you leave this area, when you go to a new church, when you move to a different area, you need to understand this. Kids who are in the church, children who are in the church, they are not junior varsity members of the church. There's no junior varsity church. The Spirit, if you trust in Christ for salvation, you get the fullness of the Spirit of God. There's no junior varsity Spirit of God. There's no, like, lower level. You get the same, uh, like, full strength everything, okay? So, Kids aren't like a lower level, like, okay, well, it's like just for the kids, so we can like make it like less good, or like we can shortcut that. Full members, full access, full responsibility. So you can't just be like, oh, well, that's like a little kid running around. No, like that's your brother or sister in Christ that you have a responsibility to care for, right? The, the family of God is built in such a way to where it's like, oh, well, it's like that's not someone else's like responsibility. That's your responsibility, as a member of the body of Christ. We're all here to make sure that all people in the body of Christ are seeing Jesus, that they're being discipled, that they're being brought to him, okay? So put that in your little memory bank. I know we don't have like a lot of little kids right now, but important uh, to not treat them as like, okay, well, like that's the JV team, okay? They're not the JV team. Full members, varsity status, Jesus loves his kids. Okay, so be intentional, be purposeful, make sure that we are uh, being faithful to do that. Because they're important to Jesus, so they're important to us. Okay, that's super important to pay attention to. Now, we move to verse 49 in these last two verses, where John then pipes up, and he says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Okay, so now we get to John complaining about this man who's casting out demons in Jesus' name. He says, we tried to stop him. We, you know, we saw him doing that, and we were like, oh, don't you do that. You knock that off trying to get demons out of this guy, right? You should just leave that demon inside of that guy, right? See how weird that sounds? Like, maybe the other disciples were there with him. Maybe they should have said that. Like, um, should, we just, should we just tell him to, like, let the demon stay in there? Like, John, you, like, maybe, like, should we make, like, an exception this one time? Like, what's going on? Right. But Jesus said, verse 50, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So, here's the deal. The disciples exercise appropriate caution to an extent here. Right? They... They think that there's some level of authority that needs to exist, which 
makes sense to them because remember, uh, in the beginning of chapter 9, they're officially commissioned by Jesus. Uh, We read this in in verse 1 and 2. He called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Right? So they get an official like, hey, twelve, get here. I'm Jesus. I'm giving you this official thing. I want you to go do it. You know, the whole rigmarole ceremony. And they're like, okay, yes, we will go do that, Jesus. And they go off and do it. Right? But then they see this other guy and they're like, well, he wasn't there at like the ceremony. Right? So in a sense, like there's some sort of like thing that makes sense how they're thinking about this. Um, right? There's, he's, he's not like, he's, this guy is not like rolling with our crew. We don't see him uh, in the pack of people. And so they try to kind of stop this, this guy's ministry of casting out this demon. It's, it's a natural reaction, but not necessarily correct. Jesus tells them, don't stop him. Don't stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Okay, so how did this guy get in this situation? Well, evidently, remember, Jesus is traveling around, making himself known. He keeps casting out demons, and people keep being like, well, this Jesus has power over demons, so like, maybe this guy's like, I believe in Jesus, and I trust that Jesus is powerful, and so like, I'm going like, to try to like, put my money where my mouth is and do the same thing, and apparently he has uh, some success with this. He's, he's just like, yeah, I'm going to go for it, right? He's not a part of this like, tighter crew of disciples, but he sees, like, hey, like, Jesus seems awesome. Like, let's figure this out. He doesn't have everything together, but he's going to kind of step out in faith and see what happens. But then, you know, it seems like the disciples are probably like a little bit sensitive about this because in the previous passage with the unclean spirit, that the little boy that gets cast out, like they don't have success, right? Everyone's like, we asked your disciples to do it and they couldn't do it, right? So then there's probably like a little bit of sensitivity there. Like, but this other guy, we saw him and we told him to stop because we couldn't do the last one. <laughs> so maybe there's a little, little, little bit of rivalry happening, perhaps. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. We don't get a lot of info with it. But I think more noteworthy here, we get a continuation of someone who clearly is trying to operate in Jesus' name. Who's clearly trying to operate with, uh, as we saw at the end of the parable of the sower, a, a good heart with pure motives. Who's let the, the word of God fall upon good soil. And who's, who's trying to step out into this in, in a proper way who's reflecting the character that Jesus seems to call those who heard the parable of the sower to. He's, he, this guy's like, yeah, I, I think like Jesus is legit. Like, I, I trust him. I'm going to try to cast out this demon in his name. In a sense, this, this man uh, is, you know, a, an early child, child of God. He's, he's a part of the family, it seems. Now, again, this passage butts up against the previous one where Jesus just gets done instructing the disciples, being like, when there's a kid, receive him. He might not have everything he needs. He might be ill-equipped, but, but bring him in. Receive him. Treat him like you would treat me. And here we find this man who is not a part of the, the crew, but he seems to be 
a child of God. And they're like, no, you're out, man. You're not with us. You're not really in the family because you haven't gone through all the stuff. You haven't gone through the official commissioning ceremony. You don't have the sweet vest like we all have. You know, you know like, you're not, you're not a part of this whole thing. But Jesus says, this guy, the one who is not against you, is for you. What the disciples were trying to stop, Jesus allows. He's like, he's not trying to, he's not trying to be against you. He's just doing it in a different way. He's for you. Someone ministering uh, alongside the disciples on their side should be encouraged, not discouraged. Especially because they're going to need the help shortly. As soon as we get to the book of Acts, it's like, it's all hands on deck. Right? The, the body of Christ would be, grow, be growing so quickly that they were going to need every bit of help. And so he's trying to get them to understand that there's no exclusivity in, in the body. No one gets to own anything. No one gets to be like, well, this is my, my group, my people. Again, this is why it's part of our church, church ethic here, part of our, our teachings and our structure that we highlight all the time, that the church belongs to Jesus. All the people who are a part of the church all belong to Jesus. You all report to him. You don't report to me. I'm an under-shepherd that's trying to be faithful, right? We, get, we do kind of get that, like, one. There's a, there's a couple, like, uh, you know, random call-outs that you find throughout Scripture, right? You get those, those kind of ones, like, in the book of Hebrews that uh, pertains to, like, the people of God. You know, like, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls, right? There's kind of those sorts of things. But there's, there's just as much of a, an emphasis on the serious nature of of uh, pastors and leaders in the church, you know, being held to account for what they do. But this is why we have a consistent emphasis being like, the church belongs to Jesus, it's Jesus' church, he can do whatever he wants, we're not going to stop him, we're not going to, like, convince him of anything that he's not trying to do himself, we're not trying to manipulate him, we're just doing whatever he's doing. We're here for him. Okay? And part of the, the framework and the structure is that, like, we aren't trying to be the only church. We don't want to be the only local church. Like, we want to be a one faction of the broader global church. We want more churches here with more people talking about how awesome Jesus is. We want more churches where people are being faithful to the scriptures and speaking about how other people can meet Jesus. We want more people speaking uh, and exalting the name of Christ. We're not in competition Right? You, you may have heard the phrase before that there are no competitions among lighthouses. You just, you're your lighthouse, you're not in competition with the lighthouse down the way. You're just there trying to shine as bright as you can so people don't crash into the rocks. Right? No one's trying to like, everyone's trying to shine as brightly as they can. But you're not trying to like make another lighthouse be less bright. We're all just here trying to shine brightly so that way people say, oh, there's danger like, you need to uh, be warned. You need to realize that there is safety, that there is salvation. Right? So, our problem, and the only pro time we ever have a problem, is when a church decides that they don't want to be a lighthouse. They don't care about the gospel. They don't care about the things of first importance. Right? And then, it, it's not our responsibility to go and, like, take them on. It's our responsibility to let Jesus do that because he t says he will do that, right? He's responsible for them. I'm not there to babysit everybody. We're just there to be as faithful as we can be with what he has entrusted to us.
And so for us, we want to be faithful to preach and proclaim the gospel. We're not a rival of any other church. We're not, we are not trying to take anybody else down. We want other people, if we see people in other churches who are not being faithful, we want to pray for them. We want them to be more faithful. We want them to like enjoy Jesus more. Like we're not trying to like, we want people to repent. We want, we want people to come to Jesus. We're never trying to, to get people to just go away from Jesus, ever. Because this is the stuff that Jesus cares about. He cares about people. Right? Remember, in the scriptures, Paul has a similar situation in the book of Philippians. He sees people who are there uh, preaching, and they have different motives. Um, some of them come from a, a pretty nasty perspective. He writes this way in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, but the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. All right, so Paul says in his situation, he's like, there are, there are like people out there and they're proclaiming the gospel and, and, and they're saying the true gospel message, but what's behind it for them is they're doing it out of out of envy or rivalry, they're trying to be like, I'm going to like be like more zealous or more faithful, and I'm going to show Paul, and you know, like maybe they have these like bad attitudes or bad motives. So we're told that some uh, are doing it out of selfish ambition. It's it's about themselves. But what does Paul say? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He's like, as long as it's being like put out there legit. If the motive is bad, something sketchy is happening under the surface, but the message is true and it's clear, he's like, cool. Like, I'm just going to let Jesus sort it out. As long as it's being put out there faithful, as soon as you start slandering Jesus and saying stuff about Jesus that's not true, then we got a problem, right? But as long as you're just saying it, but you don't like the, the messenger and the messenger saying it in some sort of, like, uh, way that is kind of, um, th- they have bad motives, right? Paul's like, just, just let Jesus do his thing. He's going to handle it. But what's happening in our text is we have like these three different sections and the disciples are basically kind of coming to the end where they're realizing like, okay, the things that we thought about Jesus, like it's way different. Like we thought it was going to go a certain way. It's not going to go that way. The, the type of power that we thought existed in the world in Jesus's uh, kingdom, it's a totally different type of power. We're not pursuing things the same way. Their ministry is not one that's going to be characterized by pride. They're not going to be seen as great, but they ought to be seen by near to, Je- near to Jesus. But ultimately, they will see that Jesus' greatness comes through his betrayal. Right? As he said, he is going to be handed over, delivered into the hands of men. The disciples' greatness is going to be connected, uh, will come through their connection to Jesus. Not by comparison to one another, not by looking around and being like, well, what have you done? What have you done? What have you done? No, by being connected to Jesus. We finish with these words of Jesus in chapter 9, verse 24, ones we continually return to, as he charged all who hear him, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Right? Lose your life for his sake. Don't try to be something that you can compare to other people and be like, well, you know, 
I'm saving my life and I'm doing all, all these great things and look at how great I am compared to Jesus says, don't do that. Just be near to me. Lose your life for my sake and you'll find it. And what happens is when you lose your life for his sake and you're with other people who've already, who, are, are intention, uh, who are living intentionally, finding their identity in Christ also, then you're just like, oh, we're all the same. We all like value something that is tremendously great and we're all a part of the family. We all have everything that we need because Jesus never runs out of anything and he never fails us because he's completely faithful all the time. So like this is ideal situation. This is exactly what he's calling us to. Don't try to manipulate. Don't try to control. Don't try to be the greatest. Be near the greatest. And you'll have everything that you need. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you simply invite us to be near to you. You don't require us to jump through so many hoops. You don't require us to um, participate in impossible tasks. But you have accomplished our salvation through your work, through your death, through your resurrection. You have done it all. And that we don't have to hope in ourselves. We don't have to hope in our own work. We don't have to hope in our own efforts. But we can trust in you. We can rely on you. And you never fail. You never let us down. And so, Lord, call us to remember your faithfulness. Call us to remember that you will be there every step of the way if we will only yield to you in humility. Let you lead us and protect us. And so, Lord, call us to respond now. I love you. Amen.